When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Today I have with me Professor Martin Butchner, who is Byron and Anita Veen Professor of Drama and of English and Comparative Literature at Harvard University in the USA. He's the author of several books published with academic and popular presses, most recent of which is Literature for a Changing Planet, published with Princeton and Oxford University Press this year. Hello, Professor Puchner. How are you today? I'm, I'm very good, Gargi. Thank you so much for having me on your program. Uh, like always, I'd like to start with the genesis of this book. How did this book come to be? What were some initial ideas when you started to write this book? You know, the book really started as a series of lectures that I gave just before COVID in November 19 at Oxford University. It's a new lecture series, the Humanities Center and Princeton University Press started um, I think it's called Lectures in European Culture. Uh, I think that's the official name. Uh, in any case, so they were supposed to be three lectures. And um, I knew that I wanted to talk about world literature because that's one of my fields. I knew that I wanted to make an argument for large scale, for looking at large scale bodies of texts uh, because I feel that we in the humanities in particular tend to focus on 50 or 70 or maybe 100 years. So we slice history into these 100-year portions. And that's great. Uh, But there are certain things you can only see if you zoom in really narrowly in one one year. And there's sort of a mini cottage industry uh, of books about one year, like 1599, one year in the life of Shakespeare, Jim Shapiro and, and others. But there's very, very little at the other extreme, uh, looking at not 100, but 1,000 or even 4,000 years of literature. In any case, I knew I wanted to make that argument. And I thought for the last lecture, 
I would apply this kind of methodology or this approach to the question of climate change is something that I had been on my mind. And so this is what I did. I gave these lectures about world literature and large scales and methods. And then the final lecture was really about the environment, um, how to read this large body of literature, world literature, 4,000 years of it, with an eye towards climate change and kind of draw lessons about, about that for the kinds of stories we should should be telling uh, about the environment. And that was really important for me, that last lecture, and there was very lively discussion afterwards. And so when I sat down to write up these lectures for publication, that became the central theme that I then threaded through the entire book. So this is how it became a book. So initially, the environmental theme was really just part of the last lecture. I knew I wanted to sort of lead up to it. It was sort of the climax, but it was not the beginning. And then I reworked the whole thing uh, and made that sort of uh, essential part. Uh, and, and so that, yeah, that's the, that's the origin story of Literature for a Changing Planet. Um, we'll come to the time skills later, but uh, the title of the book is Literature for a Changing Planet. For people who are interested in literature, why is it important to talk about climate change at all? Yeah, so, you know, the the it's true that if you tell people, you know, on the street that that in order to reckon with the climate crisis, we should we should lead rit- literature or care about storytelling. They might be surprised, and I understand that they're sort of a, a you know we we tend to think of climate change as something that has to do with science, of course, climate uh, science, and then with engineering to somehow find solutions for other energy sources and so on and so forth. So I think for most people, those are the two main associations when it comes in policies that follow from science and engineering solutions. And, you know, I think that's great. I, I'm, I'm not anti-science or anti-engineering at all. Um, but I think that there is a dimension of climate change that touches on what we in the humanities and in particular in literature think about, and that is storytelling. And I think the assumption here is that, um, story we are kind of storytelling animals we humans and that stories are important part of how we orient ourselves in the world Uh, ultimately what kinds of values we live by and even as an important motivation for action and so and since climate change is such a fundamental such a basic challenge to our modes of life it seems clear to me that storytelling has a role to play. I think it's an important role. I wouldn't say it's the only role or the even perhaps even the major role, but it has a role to play. Um, so that's, I think that's the argument I would make why literature has anything to bring to the table of climate change. And I think for many people that 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 is sort of an open question. And I think it's an argument that that has to be made, and I've tried to make it in the book. 
Yeah. Now, uh, diving into the literature, um, you start the book by comparing the Hebrew Bible and the Epic of Gilgamesh, and uh, you write, and I'm quoting here, the righteous recycler who unplugs from the grid and lives a virtuous zero emissions life will not save the humans. How did you come to this conclusion? Well, um, that conclusion seems kind of evident to me, but okay, let's make the argument here. I mean, you know, we are around 8 billion people on the planet who have to be fed and who consume natural resources and, and uh, you know, many living in very different kinds of societies. So the, 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 the ideal of the kind of unplugged off the grid person uh, just it, it's not scalable at all. Uh, uh, and so it doesn't seem like a good solution or even a good ideal to, to pursue uh, because it's extremely individualistic. It, uh, there aren't enough spaces for 8 billion people to do that. It's unsustainable. So that, that uh, I think the reason I mentioned this at all uh, it's not so much that I think most people think, oh, that's the solution. I think very few people think that's the solution. But I was, I got interested in certain, let's say, figures that are floating around in the climate discourse. And so this, the you know, the virtuous, unplugged individual. Oh, all that matters is if I personally am somehow manage. Uh, some, you know, and it's usually a very privileged kind of life. Oh, I managed to put so many solar panels on my roof that I now lead, lead, lead a zero emissions life. It's, um, but so that's just one of many figures. You know, there it is. there's the climate activist, there's the oil company there. I mean, there are so many figures, but it's a finite figures of, 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 uh, of people, figures floating around in the climate discourse. So this is one of them. And I think we need to re-examine all of them, actually. Um, yeah. And um, I mean, this is also an argument in the book where you're saying that the entire canon of world literature could lend itself to an environment and reading. Um, could you give us an example of, of a literature which has not been as yet uh, seen through the lens of environment, but now can be because we have a new tool for that. Yeah, no, that, that, that's an important part. It's part of the book. I know it's a very, it's a kind of a blanket statement that any literature or the entire history of literature is somehow entangled with the lifestyle that put us on the path towards a, a climate crisis. Uh, some people have objected to that, but, uh, I, I, I think very strongly uh, that that's the case. Uh, and so one of my chief examples is actually the one of the earliest texts of world literature, namely the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, and you mentioned the flood story. Uh, that's in some way the obvious place to start an environmental reading uh, of the Epic of Gilgamesh, because that's the earliest version of the flood story that then also appears in the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible and the Quran. And arguably still is floating around our own sort of Hollywood disaster, apocalyptic disaster climate movies, uh, that there's just some kind of crazy apocalyptic event like a flood that's going to be um, 
uh, doing us in. And that it's also a question of sin that, that we have brought this upon ourselves. So it's, it's interesting to me to, to ask whether that's actually a useful story uh, or not. And I'm sort of divided uh, about it. Uh, but once you start going further with the epic of Gilgamesh, you actually, I f- found that suddenly the whole epic actually really opened itself up to this kind of reading because the Epic of Gilgamesh is a product of one of the first cities uh, in the world, uh, Uruk. So it's very much part of urban culture. It talks a lot about the urban space. It basically draws, defines civilization as an urban space and everything else is sort of barbaric hinterland or wilderness. And for me, the most important part, the most interesting part is the most famous episode, which is when King Gilgamesh and his sidekick Enkidu go and kill the monster, which, you know, is great fun. We love epics where you have killing of monsters. Except in this case, once the monster is dead, we learn why Enkidu and Gilgamesh actually bothered to kill this particular monster because this monster, Humbaba, is the guardian of a forest. And once the monster is dead, they start to a, a big logging expedition and to bring back timber. Why do they need timber to build their cities? Because there's been an urban revolution in Mesopotamia. Um, there's already been deforestation. So they actually have to go very far to find timber in what is today Lebanon. So this way you have resource extraction, you have urbanism, you have a kind of distinction between civilization and wilderness. Um, and and once you look at the epic through that lens, you, you see there are many other parts and, and episodes I haven't even mentioned. So that that's sort of one example uh, of you know a great text, a classic text of world literature. It's in many anthologies of world literature, including the one I edit with many other people. Uh, that you know people don't usually think of when they think of climate change. But so that that would be an example. Um, yeah, you said something very interesting that you're divided on if it's a useful text or not. Why are you divided over this? Yeah, about the flood story, because um, it shows a sudden catastrophic, you know, environmental change that's brought about by human actions. Um, so you could say from that perspective, yeah, maybe we... We do need to we we need to tell new flood stories. Uh, that seems useful. Um, I'm divided uh, because I'm not sure that religious stories are the way to go. Um, the 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 sin part has to do with you know disobeying God's commandments. It doesn't. Is not connected to resource extraction, for example. So, so that part, you know, if you will, doesn't work. And the other problem is that all stories that somehow try to capture climate change through some sudden uh, event, like a flood or a meteorite that hits Earth, uh, distract from the one of the biggest problems about climate change and that it's so slow uh, and that that's one of its main challenges and that's why it's so hard to get people worried about it that's so that I think that's one reason why 
artists and, and writers and so on and so forth have to kind of face the challenge. How can we capture this slow change um, that, yes, it, it increases likelihoods of, you know, uh, 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 um, of storms and so, and so on and so forth, but uh, it's very hard to connect them directly. And, and so it's, it, it's this, in a way, it's too slow for our very short attention spans. So I'm more interested in attempts, I think would be need better attempts to somehow dramatize this relatively slow speed and somehow translate it into through some kind of mechanism into the attention span of humans. Um, so that's the other, that's the other reason. Yeah. Um, uh, coming back to what you were talking about, large-scale perspectives, uh, you say in the book that uh, reading for climate change involves zooming out and considering hundreds or even thousands of years of literature in order to perceive patterns in time. Um, how can we do this, especially uh, today, given the way literature is being studied and taught uh, in universities, which, as you have said, sp- uh, focuses on specific time periods, specific languages or cultures? How do we do that? Yeah, well, I think that we need to go beyond that. Um, and, you know, I've been uh, sort of hooked on these kind of larger time scales ever since I sort of stumbled into this field of world literature when I was asked about 15 years ago to to edit this Norton anthology of world literature and it, and it kind of blew my mind. And I, uh, I spent a lot of time immersed in literature, reading very widely, uh, realizing just how little I knew, but also how exciting it was to, to really broaden that, that scope. And so, you know, people can do it with an anthology or with some other tool or by taking a course uh, or just by making a point of relating whatever, short period, t- short timescale project they may be pursuing also to these larger questions. Um, so I think that uh, the the method for scholars or readers, I suggest, is to kind of zoom, both zoom in and out. Um, so, you know, I think it's not it's not rocket science or, or, or climate science to, 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 to do it. You can start doing it. You have to do it, make a point of it. You have to practice it in some ways. Uh, and I do think that the way literature is taught should should change. But as we know, institutions and um, curricula and so on and so forth change very slowly. So I don't think we can wait for that. We just have to do it. Um, yes. And, and coming there, if I've understood correctly, you, you are saying that a convenient approach for this is world literature. Why do you call this a convenient approach? Um, that's interesting that you uh, um, picked up on that. I think I call it an, a convenient approach because it's certainly how I got into this kind of thinking. But as you may know, the term world literature as a kind of research paradigm has been, there's been a lot of controversy about it and pe- some people don't like it. Um, I think for both good and sometimes bad reasons, so I didn't want to, what I really care about in this book, namely studying literature in a certain kind of way, and then also drawing very concrete uh, uh, lessons from that. Um, uh, I wouldn't want to restrict that to 
to this concept of world literature, to the approach of world literature, world literature anthologies. It's 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 one way, and I think it's convenient because anyone can go and you know buy a world anthology for a hundred dollars, or I don't know download it illegally for nothing and start reading so um but um but you know there may be uh, but you don't have to kind of become a card-carrying member of the party of world literature to do that uh, i think that uh yeah so that i think that's what i was uh, thinking about it's it's uh, yeah okay uh is is this a criticism when you say convenient or that's um no no i think if anything it's a cop out or it's a it's it's it says you know i think world literature is a good way to do it but if you don't like world literature call it something else do it in a different way as long as you pay attention to these environmental questions and as long as you're willing to go beyond a narrow national canon and you know if you want to call this some people like to call this a kind of post-colonial approach, Amitav Ghosh does, and I think that's that's great, or a, I don't know, transnational or whatever term. I, I didn't want to get hung up on the debate about world literature and how it's presented, you know, in a certain kind of critical discourse, because that seemed like a distraction to me. Okay. Uh, I will pick up on another uh, very interesting sentence you have in this book, uh, where you're saying that complicity is is our and in brackets analytical friend. Can you elaborate on what that means and specifically the brackets or the parentheses that you have put there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm very glad you asked that question because that one sentence about the complicity of literature has gotten a lot of attention and some people really didn't like the fact that I make this complicity argument. And I think that the critiques of it uh, sort of misfired a little bit. So I'm really glad to get a chance here to clarify a little bit. So um, I think there's a certain, and I almost regretted using the term complicity for that reason, because I realized that to some people, especially more conservative I'm talking about the more the conservative press, complicity sounds like a, a totalizing attack on literature and sounds like saying, well, since this literature is, is complicit, uh, you know, let's get rid of it. Uh, let's not read it. Let's destroy it. Uh, let's glue ourselves to it and throw, I don't know, what they throw again, uh, uh, what the Extinction Rebellion throws against paintings. So I didn't mean, I, I now understand that that is an association because some people, when they make an argument about complicity, mean it's morally reprehensible and it's all bad and needs to be destroyed. And, and I didn't mean that. And that's why I did say uh, complicity is our friend. And by, by, th- by this, I simply meant what I just said, that by recognizing complicity with a certain lifestyle or with a, with a certain mode of resource extraction, you know, like the Epic of Gilgamesh. I love the Epic of Gilgamesh. I think it's an incredibly rich te- text. And the fact, in fact, that this text lends, it seems like such an interesting part of a conversation about environmentalism makes it even more interesting. Uh, precisely because it's complicit, and this is just another way of saying it's relevant for us. Uh, it speaks to us. 
but it's complicated. It's not all good. It doesn't offer a solution. It, it's part of the problem. We can study it. We can analyze it. So that's, I think, what I mean by complicity. It, it's in a sense, it's saying all this literature, these 4,000 years of literature, they are relevant for this question of climate change because they all have some assumptions about the distinction between nature and culture. They have an assumption about human agency in relationship to other species. They have assumptions about urban urbanism and wilderness. And all of that is part of that larger cultural dimension of climate change. And so uh, to say that we need to examine this critically as I suggest, uh, uh, doesn't mean, and, you know, complicity is one word for it, doesn't mean that we should get rid of it or not read it or not care, or that this is some kind of simply moralizing attack on whoever the many anonymous authors of the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh were. I I didn't mean it like that, but I understand that in this cultural moment, a term like complicity is an extremely loaded term that's often used in a moralizing way. And so this is why I almost regret uh, um, having used it. Um, in your uh, book, you have elaborated a very interesting protocol for environmental reading. Uh, could you tell us why is there a need for a protocol like this? And how can this protocol help uh, us do an environmental read. Yeah, this protocol is in a way an an answer or an elaboration of what we just talked about with respect to complicity, because I feel like what the study of literature, especially large scale literature, you know, large scale approach, can contribute to the discourse about climate change is this kind of analytical tools. What are the basic assumptions about civilization and culture and how do they relate to climate change? And so these are often texts like the Epic of Gilgamesh and many others that don't, that are not usually part of an environmental literature canon. So in other words, we need to sort of look, we need to try to pinpoint to what extent it's connected to these larger questions. So this is basically what it what it is, a kind of reading guide, if you will, about what to look for in older literature that were written, you know, without climate change explicitly in mind. And what we elaborated uh, a moment ago about the Epic of Gilgamesh is a good example. You know, there's an interesting anecdote about that. So about a month ago, I had the chance to go to Iraq for 10 days and I gave various lectures in Baghdad and, and Arabil and, and, and Mosul, which is where Nineveh is, which is where the Epic of Gilgamesh was dug up. I was also able to go to Uruk, which was really great. These sites are completely inaccessible right now. You need like permission from the minister and go with police escort. It's very hard to visit them. Um, but the most exciting part of the visit for me was when I did a workshop with a group of very young climate activists in Mosul. And so these are people who had studied the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, as part of their school curriculum. It's it, that that's where it, you know, was dug up. That's where the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal had collected the, tech, the clay tablets that were found in the middle of the 19th century again. 
Um, and so they were, they knew the Epic of Gilgamesh. They were committed climate activists, in fact, incredibly brave ones. Uh, um, and, but they hadn't really put these two things together. And so we, we spent a couple of hours trying to puzzle this out. And they came up with really interesting solutions, including, to come back to an earlier topic of discussion, they came up with the conclusion, which I hadn't, but they convinced me that I had been very anti-flood story before, but they said, you know, we do need another flood story. The only thing is, this time, there is no arc. So this is what they this is what they want to do now. And anyway, so um, but this this is ideally this is what this reading po- protocol would would do: attune people to the ways in which almost any text uh, uh, can be read through this lens. Uh, yes, uh, coming. I mean, you do come to the idea of a manifesto at the end of this book. But when I started reading this, I thought maybe this book can be read as a manifesto because first there is a grand historical vision that you're proposing, and also the the size of the book, the language of this book. But would you agree with this reading? Do you think this book can be read as a manifesto? Um, it, you know, it. I like manifesto, so I take this as a compliment. Uh, uh, and I, it's true that, as you know, there is a section about the manifesto. Um, and I've thought a lot about the manifesto, its structure, and as you mentioned, the, the large-scale storytelling that the manifesto does, the call to arms. Um, but as, as you also know, I, I diagnose with some sadness that most people today don't use manifestos and there are various reasons and it mostly has to do with the with the assumption of speaking for others we are very worried about that um, and the we the sort of collective we of the manifesto i think is something that very few people want to touch and i'm therefore you know i'm also a child of our times uh, i'm also uh, worried about it uh, and I don't come out saying we must do X, Y, and Z, or you know, only in a small, very small way. So it 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 it, it it's therefore probably not quite a manifesto. It's or, or it's a manifesto with a very small M in the beginning and an asterisk and all other all kinds of other qualifications. And qualifications are of course very anti-manifesto in spirit. But yes, of course I. Uh, I've thought a lot about manifestos, both political and um, and artistic manifestos. Whenever there's a social movement, I'm very interested to see whether that's Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter uh, and others. The extent to which people trying to write manifestos think oh, or, or raise the question, should we now write a manifesto? But then usually... Uh, shy away from it. And the same is true of the environmental movement. There are a couple of texts that call themselves manifestos. Um, so it's something, it's an option that's some t- still in people's minds, but one that seems to has, have lost its authority. And I don't claim that authority for myself either. Yeah. Okay. Um, and this is a very interesting uh, 
for you because we have talked about this um, all throughout this podcast. But what do you hope the readers take from this book? What do you hope changes in academia after this book has been read by different people? Yeah, yeah, it's you know, it's it's interesting when you. I mean, I've had certain readers in mind when I wrote the book. Well, we started the the first readers of the book were the audiences at, at Oxford and a few other places where I had similar talks. So it's true that the, the first audience were academics, fellow academics. Um, but now looking back at it, I think there were a couple of different readers and it's always a little dangerous to address, to try to address different kinds of audiences. So one is fellow academics. Uh, and I think a kind of rallying cry perhaps for us to assert more fully what literature can bring to the table of climate change. You know, I'm part of a climate change center at Harvard, and I would say probably 85% of the people associated with it are scientists and engineers. Uh, Humanists play a very small role. And I think we need to be more assertive because there are certain things we know and have to bring. But in order to do that, I also feel like we need to change some of our assumptions and habits. We need to be, be more um, utilitarian in some sense about our discipline, not just always critique, 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 so, but, but that's the last part of the book where I feel like we need to have come up with constructive solutions. What kind of stories should we be telling? Be prescriptive almost. We don't like to do that. And I myself feel funny when I even start thinking about it. So I include myself very much here. It's not just me pointing fingers and others. I'm pointing it at myself. Frustrated that I, you know, even though I've been, been spending decades with literature, I'm kind of flummoxed when people tell me, so tell me, what kind of stories should we tell? Um, so, so, so that's, I think we need to, and we need to think in broader scales, uh, what we talked about in terms of world literature. So that's sort of the audience, uh, the internal audience or the literary audience or the academic audience. And then there's sort of another audience that's people who don't think that literature has anything or only the most minor role to play in the discussion for climate uh, change. And I think that that's a mistake. And so that's another audience, uh, um, people who mostly think about policy and so on and so forth. And I, I think that trying to reach these two very different kinds of audiences is, is a challenge. And I think in a small way, you know, book got a very good review in the Financial Times of all things. I didn't expect that in a few places like that. That's sort of more the external audience. Oh, that's interesting. There's literature some, has something to say here. And, you know, in, in some cases, more the climate change eco-criticism people but yeah it's it's hard to address these two audiences that speak different languages have different assumptions um, and so some of the difficulties in the reception I, that i perceive in there is coming back to this question of complicities is an is a good example that people uh not the financial times but other people in a more kind of non-literary, not lefty cultural way sort of tend to react allergically to a term like complicity. Uh, so anyway, a challenge. But I think those are the two 
audiences I somehow try to address simultaneously for better or for worse. Yeah. Uh, since this and this book was published this year, I'm not sure if it's the right time to ask you, but what are your future projects? What are you working on right now? Oh, I, um, I have a new book coming out in February. It's another large-scale uh, uh, um, study of culture, really. It's called Culture, colon, um, the story of us, manifesto term, the story of us from cave art to K-pop. And it's basically a kind of cultural history for a general reader that thinks about how culture is transmitted uh, from one generation to the, to the next, really from the ground up. Biological changes are transmitted through DNA. Culture needs to be passed down in some form, in some kind of storage medium, whether that's writing or, or the walls of caves or, or, in, in, or libraries uh, and, and mechanisms and, and, and education. That's how not cultural knowledge is passed down. So I'm, I focus on certain um, institutions like caves, like libraries, like universities, even podcasts, um, and then think about the fact that most most of the time they don't work particularly well, or do, they don't work very well for a long time. So you always have breakdowns, and so you have interruptions, and then you have that experience that I think almost all humans have had, where they encounter dimly understood fragments from the past, and then they kind of remake culture in that way. So I try to distill some of these basic mechanisms about how culture works, if you will. Um, so yeah, that's that's coming up in February. That sounds like a wonderful project. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Professor Bushner, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Gargi.